Hello, and welcome to the Foot School Podcast. I'm Andy Brummage. In a few days, Foot School will reopen for in-person learning for the new school year. Reopening campus is an enormous undertaking with a seemingly endless number of details to consider about the health and safety of our community. So today we decided to invite to the podcast three health professionals who have been lending their expertise to help us plan for a safe reopening. Camille Brown is Assistant Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at Yale School of Medicine and is Foote's Consulting Pediatrician. Ted Cohen is Professor of Epidemiology at Yale School of Medicine. And Christina Price is Chief of Allergy and Immunology at Yale School of Medicine. All three are Foot School parents. All the questions for this podcast came from Foot parents. We recorded outdoors at Foot at a safe physical distance from one another. So if you hear the occasional siren or cicada, that's why. Camille, Ted, and Christina, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome. Uh, Ted, maybe you can set the table for us. A parent asks, Connecticut has fared better than a lot of states this summer. What's the current state of COVID in Connecticut, and what, if anything, does this predict for the fall? Um, so the state of COVID in Connecticut is um, uh, in we're in a good situation compared to many other states. Um, we're among the lowest in the country in the numbers of estimated infections happening per day, um, the numbers of uh, infections happening per capita, and um, these numbers are also trending downwards. So um, unlike many states that are seeing increases, um, things have been steadily improving uh, in Connecticut for several weeks. So um, um, I'm uh, pleased to report that we're in um, good shape at the beginning of the school year. Another parent asked about a recent article they read in the Journal of the American Medical Association. Uh, They said the article demonstrated a 90% increase in COVID diagnoses over the past four weeks coincident with the reopening of schools in other regions of the country. Um, Ted, I'm curious, what do you make of these upticks and do they predict anything for the reopening of schools in Connecticut? Yeah, so I'm aware of these uh, reports as well. Um, We have certainly seen um, uh, outbreaks associated with um, the uh, restarting of schools in some areas. Um, I think it's very difficult to um, interpret um, sort of larger trends in uh, the epidemiology of COVID in places with school reopenings as being um, causal. Um, In particular, um, the idea that school openings are causing rises in COVID cases seems to me to be not um, very plausible at this point in time. Um, But that's not to say that um, concerns around um, other types of behaviors happening coincident with school reopening um, are not of some concern. So um, I'm not suggesting that uh, we shouldn't be concerned about this, but I don't think we should interpret um, uh, some of these uh, uh, upticks in community infections um, as being attributable to school reopenings at this point. Camille, when Foot School does reopen its campus, um, it's going to be doing a whole new system of health screening. Um, Can you kind of talk about how daily health screenings are going to work for foot students and staff? 
So Foot has purchased a new app called Luminaire um, that will be a screening app that every parent will do for each child before they start school um, on their telephone. And it's based on the CDC criteria um, for the symptoms of COVID um, and also screening for exposure or travel. And after completing the app, um, each individual will get a... Um, a, a color, so yellow, oh sorry, green, they will be able to come to school. Yellow, they need to not come to school, but talk to the health office um, before they are allowed to come to school. And then in the red zone, um, which is highly worrisome for a child either having, or a faculty member having symptoms of COVID or a recent exposure to COVID, will need to contact the health office and also their provider. Um, and from this, we've created flow sheets to be able to outline um, testing or isolation or quarantining that needs to be done from the results of this screening. But I think very importantly um, for us as parents, we're going to completely have to change how we approach sending our kids to school in the morning. Um, there's going to be none of, you know, you don't feel so well, but why don't you go to school? And if you get start feeling worse, go and see the nurse. Um, if our child is not feeling well, um, then just not going to be able to come to school. You'll have to keep them at home and see how they do at home. Um, and no giving um, Tylenol emotion, which I have to admit that I've done that before in the past and sent my kid off to school. Um, I think we're going to have to work together as a community and um, as parents really change our culture of what is um, acceptable for sending our kids to school um, on the basis of how they're feeling that day or whether they're having any symptoms. And I think this is very important because kids um, have been shown to present uh, with very mild symptoms with COVID. So what I think we would tend to ignore as parents in the past, we're going to have to start paying attention to now um, to be able to protect the foot community. Christina, there's been a lot in the news about children and coronavirus, but what does the latest research indicate about how vulnerable children are to getting and spreading coronavirus? So there are several small research studies indicating that children um, are getting infected, that they have milder symptoms, um, but the notion that they're super spreaders uh, hasn't really borne out. Uh, they haven't seemed to be major transmitters of COVID. Um, so I, I think all of the research continues to say that we have to do more research to get more information, but I would really like to build on what Camille said and that um, what we do know of the mild symptoms, we just have to be more mindful of. The new loss of sense of smell or even headache or just if, like she said, if your child isn't feeling well, um, I, I do think it's a little bit of an alert that we have to pay more attention to. We received a lot of questions about testing, and here are two of them. Wouldn't it be smart to test all returning students at the start of the year to rapidly identify asymptomatic carriers? And it is unclear to me why Foot is not securing regular testing for staff and students like other schools are doing. We have heard other independent schools are conducting weekly tests for the entire community. Um, Camille, can you shed some light on the question of testing? So to begin with, testing really only gives you information about one particular point in time. Um, so if someone is negative, a test result only lets us know that they are negative at that one point in time. 
Um, it doesn't let us know that they were just recently exposed and are going to convert to a positive test um, in a day or two or that they are going to get an exposure immediately after the test, um, say if they go to a party right out after having the test or go out um, and eat inside a restaurant and get an exposure in a high-risk area, um, we do not know that they're going to um, become positive. So ideally for testing, testing needs to be done um, for a community, so as a day school where people are leaving the school and coming back, needs to be done on a regular basis. Um, and we don't have very clear guidelines of how frequent that is. I've heard from every week um, down to every two to three days. Um, so one test before school uh, starts um, could potentially give a false sense of security um, to everyone who tested negative because actually that only tell, tells us that they are negative at that one point in time when they got the test taken. In addition, um, for right now here in Connecticut, uh, the ability to get tested when you're an asymptomatic person without a high-risk exposure is um, still not very quick um, in that it can take about five to seven days for those test results to come back. Uh, there's just not enough availability of um, all the different mediums or the, the ability to run the tests and also the staff to be able to do the testing. Good news is that I think this is going to be something that's changing. Um, there's new different types of tests that are coming along. Um, I just heard one of the recent saliva tests got FDA approval. Um, and so there's going to be different ways to do testing and to get testing results back quicker. Um, here at FOOT, we are not set up to be able to test individuals on a regular basis um, within our health office. Um, having all, say, 500 individuals on the campus going to the health office to get tested on a weekly basis is just not feasible for our FOOT campus. Um, however, I do think with the availability of um, new tests coming on, um, along in particular with the saliva tests, um, my, my hopes is that we will be able to have uh, quicker tests within a provider's office or even um, home testing that individuals can do before they come to, um, to school. So we don't have testing as part of the reopening plan at this moment, um, but I do think that this is um, going to be something that we will be able to incorporate into the plan of keeping um, the school safe as um, tests become more easily available um, and, um, and have a quicker turnaround time. I'm curious to see if uh, Ted or Christina have any other thoughts on this. Yeah, I also wanted to add that we were really thoughtful and we have, the three of us talked about the testing and what the options were before. And I think that we really wanted to highlight that our clinical judgment and suspicion um, was really quite going to be quite important and sound. And that in our clinical experience, we had seen many cases of false negatives. Um, and if we rely on the results of the testing, letting that trump our clinical judgment, I think you can get in an unsafe um, situation there. So you know, back to if your kid doesn't feel right or something thing, somebody thinks something's not quite right, to take those um, clues seriously. Yeah, I mean, so I, I fully agree. And I, and I do think your point about sort of watching this space, this is a place of, of active test development. Um, and um, my hope is that um, we will have uh, tests that can be done either at home or um, uh, with... Uh, uh, with easier collection and more rapid turnaround, um, 
you know, fingers crossed, we certainly thought that we would uh, have been in a better place with respect to testing um, than, uh, than we are right now. I would note that in Connecticut, um, compared to many other states, we, we have um, had relatively good testing. That's not to say that testing is where we think it should be, but I will note that over the past few weeks, um, the, the positive rate of tests being done in Connecticut has been um, uh, routinely under 1%, which is, um, um, which is I think, a, a, a testimony to the, um, to the, effective, the relatively effective job that Connecticut has been doing. Um, and New Haven, in particular, has been a, um, a, uh, better than the rest of the state on average. Uh, Christina, a parent wrote in to ask... If a child is home with congestion, cough, or runny nose, how do you know when to let the child back in school, absent a 14-day quarantine, since that child could have COVID even without a fever? Yeah, that's definitely the concern, and I think even I, I worry about that too. But in that particular case, that's where the family would probably consult their pediatrician or even call the school nurse for some guidance if there's a um, this would be symptomatic if if you had COVID, and it would probably warrant COVID testing. So then within the three to five days of symptoms, um, if you had testing and it were negative, uh, then I imagine that would be an okay time to return um, to school. Would that be right, Camille? Exactly. And I think, you know, each individual case has to be looked at um, uniquely um, that child if they have had a significant exposure to someone who's COVID positive um, is uh, going to be different from a child who's been at home doing no activities and um, there have been no COVID exposures um, to the family. Um, So I think we can um, we have kind of a macro way of looking at it with our flow sheets and then within that we are then going to take each case um, uniquely to be able to discuss the situation with the family when a child it does have symptoms but i absolutely agree um, a child being symptomatic is going to have to stay home um, and then we will be able to make the decisions um, after they've spoken with the healthcare provider and either found a uh, a clear alternative diagnosis or have had the testing for um, for covid So it sounds like there's going to be a lot of robust interaction between people's private pediatricians, the school nurse, and you as well, kind of guiding um, what to do in all these cases. And I think we're also lucky that we have connections with the Department of Public Health. And so in cases of positive COVID, we will also be able to um, follow their guidance um, as well. Uh, A lot of parents are wondering about what happens if there's a positive case at school. So Camille, what will happen if a student or a staff member tests positive for COVID? So that child will need to be staying home um, following the CDC guidelines of isolation, which are for the 10 days um, and cannot return to school until they've had 24 hours without fever, um, taking no fever, reducing um, medicines during that time, and then um, improvement of symptoms. The cohort, um, so the immediate cohort of that child will also need to be home and quarantined during that time. Um, And we will be recommending um, testing for the cohort, uh, as well as any um, siblings uh, of the child who is positive. um, And play dates and children potentially who have 
carpooled or had any significant exposure to the child. Um, and so I think uh, when we look at how um, how the the quarantining of um, close contacts falls, I think this is a, a point that uh, we really are recommending not having um, play dates or significant exposures to children who are not within the cohort because it then has a ripple effect of affecting many other children, potentially cohorts across campus. Um, so once again, a, a positive child will stay home for isolation. Their cohort will be quarantined and siblings and any close exposures will also need to be um, quarantined at home. And what happens if a parent tests positive? Do their children have to stay home? And if so, for how long? So we're asking that um, that uh, all parents, everyone at home, um, really keeps uh, open communications with the school. And so if a, a parent was positive, that they would actually let the health office know. Um, the children, because... Um, having a parent who's positive is a close con contact, the children will need to be home and um, be quarantined during this time. Um, and we would also recommend that they get testing, um, which will help us to know whether they have um, been um, positive when they've been on campus. The challenge that comes into um, having an adult or a parent um, positive is when we talk about quarantine, the 14-day quarantine is that quarantine starts on the last day of exposure to the, the sick individual. And so the situation is going to be, um, have to be looked at to see if a parent can isolate themselves at home from the child, um, that those children's quarantine can start with their, lo with their last interaction with a parent. Um, however, if that is a situation that the parent cannot isolate themselves from the children, um, we then have to adjust the beginning of the quarantine until the parent has completed the isolation and then the child starts their, their quarantine. Um, so timing can be a little bit tricky. Christina, when is a child no longer able to spread an infection? Is it 14 days after the onset of COVID-19 or 14 days after the end of the child's symptoms? I believe, as Camille said, it's 10 days after the onset of symptoms is what's on the CDC guidelines. Ted, how will the school know when it needs to go completely remote? What data, i.e. infection rates, hospitalizations, etc., should schools rely on in making these decisions, or should they be relying on something else? Yeah, this is, um, to me, a really, uh, it's an excellent question. It's a question that I would love to have a more um, concrete answer to, but as far as I'm aware, there really um, is very little guidance at this point as to what a threshold would be to uh, go completely remote. I can give you sort of a gestalt of what types of things would um, make it more likely that we'd be moving towards that. Certainly things happening within the school of concern. If we see um, um, sort of multiple exposures and, uh, and numbers of, of cohorts of students um, having to move remotely, this would uh, signal some concern that um, um, things that we have been putting into place to uh, um, uh, to reduce the risk of transmission um, in school have not been as successful as we hoped that they were. Um, um, simultaneously, we need to be um, concerned about what's happening in the community and outside the school. So certainly rising uh, case rates in the community 
um, um, if we start to see um, constraints on uh, resources, certainly if our hospitals start to fill up and we're um, running low um, on ICU space and ventilators, these are all things that um, would need to be considered um, in the decision that it would be time to um, uh, move school entirely remote. Um, what I was hoping to convey sort of um, at the beginning of uh, this session was the idea that we have put ourselves in a relatively good position um, in terms of community spread. Um, we, uh, we know that there is um, some slack in the system at this point, which is what we need to be able to um, safely begin a return to school. Um, there, there have been reports in other types of school environments of transmission, um, and certainly um, that has been of greater concern with older children, high schools, and universities. Um, I think FOOT is uniquely set up to, um, uh, to do the types of social distancing um, necessary to make it possible for us to give this a try. But I think we're all aware that this is not an entirely risk-free proposal. We're doing it because we know that there is um, also benefits to our children of being in person at school. Um, so I think this is something that um, th this idea of, um, of thresholds is, is something that we'd all love to be able to see a signal out in front of us of what would, what would mean that it's time to take this remote, but that's just not possible at this point. We got a lot of questions about the day-to-day -day rhythms of school as well. Um, one parent wrote, what are the best kinds of masks for children to wear and which kinds should they avoid? Well, I'll start, but I, 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 I'm, I'm interested because I think that, um, that other people might disagree. We, we are um, living through something that uh, is really unprecedented in any of our lifetimes. There are relatively few data about um, uh, the comparative efficacy in masks in either preventing transmission or pre preventing infection. Um, we have learned a lot more about their efficacy. We know that they do have ef efficacy. There are a few small studies that have looked at um, uh, the uh, relative ability of different materials to prevent um, the onward um, spread of infection, um, but the, the data have not been consistent. Um, I think that there is uh, um, good data to support the use of these sort of disposable paper surgical masks. I think there's also good reason um, to believe that cotton-based masks have quite a bit of efficacy. There have been more questions about sort of neck gaiters, but it's been um, uh, the, the data as I've seen them have been very inconsistent. My feeling is that it's really we're asking our children to do something very difficult, to wear masks for much of the day. and. Um, my personal uh, um, sort of slant on it would be I'm going to select masks for my kids that they feel comfortable in, that they're not going to um, feel the need to move around on their faces a lot. So I think that's a, you know, this is, we, we want, we're, we're recommending masks, we're, we're requiring masks in school, um, and we need to um, do what we can to make our children as comfortable as possible while they wear the masks. Another question, should children wear face shields in addition to masks? I think this builds on what Ted was saying, that there's not very good data or literature to suggest that. Um, and again, to use common sense, um, but whatever your child is comfortable wearing, what you, whatever makes them feel safe 
um, and what they will wear, I think they should wear. I, I just would add to that that um, if if a student is going to wear a face shield, it needs to be in addition to a ma- face mask. Correct. It's not or a face shield because we know that the face shield is less effective than a face mask. I'm also going to add to that because I just want to highlight how important masks are. Um, they are really a backbone of um, our uh, mitigating factors of uh, transmission of the virus in school, along with social distancing and increased ventilation and hand hygiene. Um, and I absolutely agree um, that the the best mask is the most comfortable mask um, that your child you know is most comfortable in. Um, it does have to cover both the mouth and the nose, um, and so a mask that is actually going to stay in place and the child isn't going to have to play with. Uh, we are at foot... Um, mandating that it is going to be either a cloth mask covering the nose or the mouth or um, what Ted said, one of the the surgical, the blue surgical masks. Um, We won't be allowing um, gaiters or bandanas at school um, because, as Ted said, the data is is mixed on those. Um, And the other thing we won't be allowing is I'm seeing more and more of masks with little valves in them. um, And those are actually were created kind of as construction masks. What the valve does is it allows the wearer to exhale um, through the valve, which would allow potential aerosols to come out through the valve. um, And and therefore, they are not not appropriate for wearing in... um, uh, for for COVID protection, um, and I think once again to highlight the the role the the wearing of a mask is that we help when an individual is wearing a mask, it is to help protect that that individual from spreading the the uh, COVID two virus that causes uh, COVID um, to another um, another or sorry the SARS CoV two virus to another person. Um, the masks that we expect in kids at school are not going to be the same as healthcare workers wear in very high-risk environments. Uh, the cloth masks are going to be at school to help prevent any individual from spreading um, the virus within the school setting. Another parent asks, how will mask breaks work? And what happens when the cold weather hits? Will masks breaks, mask breaks be inside or outside only? Or do we know? So this is my my understanding from from what I've heard. Um, I'm a member of the Health and Safety Committee, is that mask breaks will be outside. Um, The children will be spaced at six-foot distancing during the mask breaks, um, um, and that they are based outside. Um, I think our kids here at Foot get outside a lot. It's an an environment or the... The way the school is made is for kids to be able to be moving around. And I think even in inclement weather, they're used to going outside to be having their recess. Um, So I do think um, mask breaks will be be happening. Um, The school does have um, or will be placing up tents around campus. And so um, there will also be the opportunity, even if it is um, raining, for children to be able to have um, time inside of a tent doing the mask time. Um, we haven't spent a ton of time thinking about, um, uh, you know, kind of much later on in the year, but um, I've seen children play outside in recess for all the weather, so I think we should expect that our children will be um, spent still continuing to spend a significant amount of time outside during the school year. This question really tugs at the heartstrings. Will my daughter be allowed to hug her friends in her cohort? 
I think this question really goes into the balancing act that we're doing here at Foot um, of trying to make sure that the Foot environment is not a very restrictive, um, anxiety-provoking, scary environment for our chill to come, children to come to. But at the same time, I think it is our duty to um, to put safety of both the children, um, our faculty members, and also everyone's families as a top priority. Um, and so the children, when they're coming to school, will have a lot of education about um, uh, safe behaviors and um, uh, social interactions. Um, and I think this is really important for our children to learn. Um, COVID is not going away anytime soon. And so over the next several years, children are really going to have to learn how to um, interact and um uh, and, and play in a, you know, COVID, I guess, COVID safe manner. Um, and so we will be doing a lot of education with the kids about social distancing, masking, um, both inside, both outside, um, hugging, kissing, wrestling. It just won't, it, it, it just won't be part of their behaviors here at school. Um, however, I think kids are pretty uh, creative and resilient. And I also know our our staff and faculty are here. So I have a feeling that they will be learning a lot of new ways and fun ways to kind of show their um, show their friendship um, and interact with, with kids. And I think they'll probably be coming home and teaching us some things about how we can um, uh, appropriately interact with people during the time of COVID. We also received a lot of questions about life outside of school. Here's one. Do you have any recommendations for families of students that live with grandparents? Should the students opt for remote learning, or are there ways to keep grandparents safe from exposure? The types of decisions that families are making right now are, um, there. It's, it's not fair that we've put families in this position to be choosing between in-person school and remote school. Um, I do think that the question um, raises, you know, uh, an, an important element of sort of the risk-benefit um, of bringing your child back to school. Um, I don't know where any individual family is going to fall on this, but I certainly think that in thinking about what it means for your child to go back to school, you should be considering the home environment and what it means um, to have a child even in an environment that has been as thoughtfully um, um, considered as um, that uh, which foot um, will be uh, come the start of school in the fall, this is um, an additional opportunity to introduce infections um, into a home. And if there are extremely vulnerable people in the home, um, that should be part of um, the calculus that families are doing. Um, I think the where any individual lands on that decision is highly personal. It depends on your child as well, their learning um, uh, capacity remotely and in person, um, and the opportunities to um, you know uh, safely protect vulnerable people in the home by minimizing interaction within the home environment and. I think that it's that either decision about remote school or in-person school is entirely defensible. And um, my understanding from um, uh, the leadership that Alewa and Beth in particular had, have, um, have articulated is that the school is ready to support our children regardless of that decision. So um, I, I don't know how to advise an individual family other than to say that um, 
either decision is completely reasonable from my perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's no right or wrong decision. It's what feels right for for the family and for you. Um, these are difficult, difficult times, uh, impossible situations to be in. Under what conditions would it be safe or wise to return to after-school sports? Again, I think, you know, reasonable people have disagreed about um, the relative merits of some of these activities. And I can only say things from the perspective of, you know, being um, a dad with um, kids in school, um, feeling the, um, the, the need to um, uh, do everything possible to allow my kids to be in school for as long as possible. I think um, um, we haven't had this conversation together, but I think it's, um, it's unrealistic to expect that um, an entire school year for all of these cohorts is going to go on uninterrupted. But um, I think that we're going to have um, situations that uh, need to be um, uh, need to be dealt with, probably some cohorts that are going to have to spend some time in remote learning. But to me, the balance of sacrificing after school activities to make it much more likely that our kids can have as long a period of time in school is um, a decision that I would always opt for. Um, and I recognize that other people might feel differently. Um, but to me, this entire exercise that we're doing is to make it as possible for our children to spend as long in-person school as possible. And I think if a family is approaching looking at some outside activities, um, they should look at the policies. Um, and I think we have some pretty high policy or you know high level guidelines and policies here on foot. Um, and if they don't um, match up, um, saying that they are not paying attention to social distancing or mask wearing, um, I would. Um, say that that is is going to be challenging um as ted said for for us to be able to keep the the school open um and um in-person learning going because kids will have much higher rate of exposures um in out in the community uh, and i and i do think is you know in, an individual here as part of the the foot com community is it, a huge privilege to be part of this community and um and being able to have the ability to have access to um, in-person learning. Um, and I think as for all of us as part of this community, I think we have to uh, realize that there's a little bit of a responsibility of going through that and that we um, we have to take the responsibility that we're making some decisions in our, um, you know, have all of our activities outside of foot, that they are not um, putting our children or us at, um, at higher risk because that higher risk can be passed on to other individuals and their families within the foot community. If or maybe when we get a positive COVID case at foot school, how should we feel about that and react to that as a community? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great way to to uh, pose the question. I I think um, again, it's uh, it's unrealistic to hope. Even I think that there's there's um, that there are no cases over the course of the entire um, year at foot. I think we expect that um, uh, circulation of this virus is going to continue um, uh, for the indefinite future, um, certainly at least until um, an effective vaccine is available. Um, so it seems um, very realistic to me to expect that at some point 
um, someone in the foot community is um, going to be exposed and infected. And um, in my view, that's not a failure of um, our efforts to get our kids back in school. What um, would be concerning um, is if we're unable to prevent transmissions happening um, on the foot campus. So um, I think that um, the plans that have been outlined by the school, um, uh, um, all the way from cohorting um, to uh, you know moving as many activities um, outdoors as possible, um, have all been constructed to minimize the risk of transmission. Um, and to identify anyone who might be um, infected and infectious as early as possible. Where are we with development of a vaccine? It seems like if you read in the news, some articles suggest maybe early 2021, and others say it could be much longer. Does anybody have any insight on kind of where that might stand at this point? There are some reports that they're going into phase three. We're hearing some countries have started um, vaccinating. Um, but I think that we should focus more. Um, I don't think we should put so much on when the vaccine is ready. I think that even when it is available, it will still take a while before everybody is vaccinated and we reach that um, degree of, of uh, I guess, safety I think we really have to continue to focus on the masking, the social distancing, and the hand hygiene. I I don't think that waiting for the um, vaccine is where we should be pinning all of our hopes. That's great. Does anybody want to share any final parting thoughts before we wrap this up? Um, so first, thanks for allowing us to participate in this conversation. I, I think that um, I have... Uh, um, learned a lot about the foot community through this really challenging time. And um, I, if there's, you know, any thoughts to leave with parents as they make these difficult decisions about what's right for their family, it's really that, um, that the decision that they make is the right decision and it will be supported by um, other parents and the school. Um, and, um, I think, you know, certainly we're all uh, available for questions and conversation, and um, um, hopefully we're going to be in a much better place than this two or three months from now. Well, Camille, Ted, Christina, thank you so much for joining us today. You can find more information on Foote's reopening plans and the topics discussed today on our website at www.footschool.org slash reopen. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here soon. Foot School Podcasts are a production of The Foot School, an independent school for grades K-9 to in New Haven, Connecticut. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It will help other people find our podcast. Find more information at www.footschool.org. Thank you for listening.